Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Steph Douglas is a businesswoman, mother of three, wife of Doug, and founder of Don't Buy Her Flowers, the thoughtful gift company she started after realizing that sometimes when we're in need of a pick-me-up, we might not want another thing to look after or find vases for. Steph also has a dedicated Instagram following thanks to hilarious, honest, and heartbreaking posts about family life. Steph grew up as one of five children and her parents also cared for foster children, so a busy home life was fairly standard. But when Steph went to start her own family, she faced challenges for which she was totally unprepared. Steph discovered at 14 weeks pregnant that her husband Doug had cancer and she's spoken openly about his treatment and how they coped at the same time as bringing a new baby into the world. Steph writes beautifully about her experiences and has also opened up about body image, food issues, growing a business, and the struggle to look after our mental health. She's a firm believer that being more honest and vulnerable makes things better for everyone and says, as hard and lonely as it has been at times, I've slowly realized there's nothing unique about my experience. It only takes a few random conversations and you quickly find out that most of us feel the same. It's absolutely mental here. (laughs) Two of my children are at home because of the coronavirus in their bubble. I'm not quite sure what's happening. Holding it together. And so you were working around homeschooling Zoom calls. Yeah, and um, the business is really busy because lots of people are stuck at home and can't get out. And companies are coming on to the fact that they need to do something to pep up their teams. It's all brilliant, but it's just a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, so we're okay. (laughs) This morning I'm drinking a lot of coffee. I just, in fact, I just, I just read an email about, um, yeah, the, the mental health toll of new business or, and business owners at this time of year. And it sounds like, yeah, that must be, you're growing year on year and it's going brilliantly, don't buy her flowers, but it is a lot, isn't it? That's a lot with three kids to be. It's, it's a lot. It's much better now because there's a team. Yeah. So I did it in my house for two years. We started in 2014. And that, looking back, that was mental because I had a two and a three-year-old and and I was packing boxes on the floor in the spare room with bits stuffed all around the house. And, and then I got to a point where there were girls coming into my house after college to come and pack boxes. So again, it wasn't really my house, you know. <laughs> and then when we moved it out, we were like, oh, that's better. And we had a warehouse and stuff. And then we, it's just really grown. But then in March, it just went off the chart. So it's like, we've had this great growth since we started, but it's like tripled, quadrupled, something crazy. Since lockdown, wow. Since lockdown. And then we're seeing it again, kind of, it, it came down a bit, but not that much over the summer. And now it's kind of coming back in force so so it's great in that we have obviously tapped into something you know it it just happens to be exactly the right thing because people are stuck at home we do all the it's wrapped yeah exactly they don't have to go to the shops which no 
I mean, I've been to the shops and it's not that much fun. And the post office queue is not that much fun. So it totally makes sense, as well as people wanting to think about others and be thoughtful. So it's like, just, I, we weren't ready. <laughs> yeah, for it to so be that just, big. Yeah, it, we've had this growth where we've slowly brought people in and it, you know, we've done it in quite a measured way, really, because we didn't take investment. My role is a lot of it is right HR stuff, like dealing with everybody's anxieties and all the stuff people are going through because of COVID and making sure everyone feels safe. I'm learning. I'm learning a lot. We keep saying, well, we're learning, aren't we? Are we learning? I feel like you're a fellow kind of one of life's doers and we I, uh, my instinct is the positive spin and then sometimes I have to sit back and go oh no this is this this is sometimes this is quite shit and yeah I mean the, the idea of when you were saying that you had a two and three year old and trying to pack boxes from what I know of two and three year olds they want to unpack every box they see oh they, they like the packaging yes. yes how did yeah. you keep them from destroying things I would like lock the door and I did quite a lot at night and they did they were at nursery I think three days a week and it wasn't that busy then so obviously I wasn't trying to do like the levels we are now so but yeah and I don't know I I loved it and I do love it so I suppose that's the I think you have to try and remind yourself because sometimes you're just like this is really hard and then you have to go but the fact that I have been able to be flexible for the last six months you know I have been able to still work Mm -hmm. it's just been a really weird time sometimes or and I've had work to power me through which actually I've realized now has been my crutch really because I had focus and I feel, I feel I feel bad for people that weren't working if they are someone who does like to be doing like you say yeah. because I think that would be even harder to have your kids at home and not have the respite of feeling what you get from work which might be feedback or it might be achievement or it might be and instead you, if you're at home you don't yeah. get any of that. yes so I am fascinated I grew up an only child and I am fascinated by your oh, yeah, I've got six siblings. Uh, five siblings. Five siblings. Five siblings. Oh, yeah. my research apologies. One and I'll get in trouble. <laughs> okay, so so please talk me through this. This is fascinating. So there's yeah. six kids in the house, yeah, and your parents, and how many how many foster children at any one time would you say? So my eldest brother is like twelve years older than me. So he had left home by the time they were doing the fostering and adopting, and two two. So the six of us. And then they did remand fostering as well, which was slightly crazy. So it's kids who were basically on remand from prison because they were too young. I don't, I don't know. I can't really remember. But they would be these characters that would come in that were so different to us. So it was a massive learning curve. And I think I can't speak for any of my other siblings because I think we've all had what's been interesting as adults is realising that everyone had quite a different take on it or a different experience of it because it depended on your age. So I was the youngest when they started fostering and adopting and I'm sure it has had impact I'm sure if we unpicked it there's all sorts of impact that went on but as an adult and and as a mum I kind of see that what my parents were trying to do which was to help kids who otherwise wouldn't have had that family or parenting or and so actually kind of god that's actually pretty amazing because because the toughest role would have been on my parents, yeah. regardless of the impact on, on us. It's pretty major. And your and dad left being a solicitor to train to be a vicar. <laughs> so was this, how, where did it come in the, in the series of events? Of- so he, my dad 
at my christening apparently they weren't particularly religious but they got talking to and it was like a really lovely little church and I guess you know the nice bits of religion which are about community and kindness and the bits that you don't really hear too much about that's what they became involved in mm-hmm. and um so that was at my christening so my dad didn't become a vicar till I think I was 11 when he started training uh so we had to go away to theological college for two years which again my mum then was at home monday to friday on her own with all the kids can you imagine oh my god she she deserves some sort of measure i I, i'm fascinated by your mum your mum sounds amazing and a font of wisdom and yeah she loves the gin she plays bridge she likes to swear she was not taking any negatives when I think one of when they move you around vicar houses I think we went to one and they said there wouldn't be room for a dishwasher and my mum was like I'm sorry we're having a dishwasher I have six children and she just yeah she's quite a force my mum Jesus would want me to have a dishwasher yeah want me to have a dishwasher yeah so so dad wasn't always so then they they moved to a big house when I was like three and it was like an eight-bedroomed house and they moved to that because they wanted to have room to be able to help other kids so that was before he became, so that kind of came first. Yeah, I know. I probably should sit down with them at some point and have a really deep chat about all this because you kind of, I know lots of bits, but you kind of go, bloody hell. I find it so uh, interesting. I've spoken to so many people who are children of vicars for this book that I, I wonder if there's some sort of red thread or line that goes through. It's so interesting. Really? With that kind of perspective of having a faith and also just having that kind of um, overwhelming urge to do good and to do something helpful how was their relationship with sadness what did you learn about sadness growing up I think I learned a lot from my mum so my mum I'm probably quite like my mum I guess in lots of ways but she is a pretty open book you know when you see her and actually she always said as a kid when I walked in the door you would know what kind of what you're in for basically so I would either be bubbly and oh mummy or I'd be miserable (laughs) or I'd have a look on my face and I was thinking about what you said about what did I learn about sadness and my mum is a crier and I'm a crier and one of my brothers is a massive crier and she would cry yeah she was like it it was it was okay to be emotional okay which I am and I can remember I was thinking about a specific time when when I was at primary school and I think I was probably about seven or eight and and one of the dads died like some not someone that I was particularly friendly with but a parent of this in the school died and he wouldn't have been particularly old maybe he was I don't know 50 and I remember my mum being outside the school and the mum walking past and again my mum didn't know her that well just from school gate or whatever but my mum stopping and saying, are you okay? How are you doing? And this woman burst, I'm going to cry because it makes me yes, cry. Yes, This is how emotional I am. My mum asked her if she was okay and the woman burst into tears and said, no one ever asks me. Like at the school gate, no one ever asked her because it's awkward and people don't know what to do and, or, you know, British law. Yeah. And I can remember my mum hugging this woman and they both started crying. And I was like, what? What are you doing? I'm a good mum, so embarrassing. Um, and her just saying, and her relaying the conversation, just saying, no one's asked her if she's okay. And of course she's not. Her husband just died. So I think I probably, I hope I have actually, because I think that's a really good quality, have that. You know, where you, it's empathy, isn't it? Yeah. And so my mum definitely has that. And, and I remember her talking to me about gifts even for her saying, because she had my eldest brother before she met my dad and the, and the dad wasn't around. And her saying that someone came to the hospital and bought something for her. 
and she was shamed because it was the 70s and she was a single mum and this old lady came in and my mum I remember my mum telling me about it and how lovely it was that this woman she said oh you don't know the baby doesn't need anything this is for you which again is really interesting because obviously that's kind of where I went yeah so I think my mum definitely you can be sad but as a family I think there's lots of joking you know because it's a big family so it's all you know no one should take themselves too seriously so there's a real mix there I think because you no one you know keeping everyone in their place I think we've got that a bit which sometimes I think as an adult you kind of go oh, actually I want to be able to just celebrate the good stuff and we don't have to always take the piss out of someone okay. if they've done really well do you know what okay. I mean that's only something I probably have thought about more recently so the balance between like talk between kind of a perspective because there's lots of you and it's busy yeah. and then yeah. also not succumbing to that tall poppy syndrome where we yeah. sort of cut people yeah. down and yeah which I think is really common in big families so and especially with, yeah there's so much going on and lots of personality and 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 lots of laughing you know and taking the piss there was a lot of that as well as the door slamming and someone's always storming out of room you know yeah. that when you're a kid you leave the table and slam the door I think my kids are just about to hit that <laughs> I feel like yeah. it happens earlier these days as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm prepared for. And so growing up with that background, were you sort of firm believer in in kind of love and marriage? And was that something that you thought, I, I can do this. I've seen a good model of what this is like. This is what I want. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, yeah, my parents are still together. And and actually they're quite, they're not fiery, but they will, they row, you know, <laughs> they're, especially in the car, God. But they don't pretend not to. Yeah. And I think Doug and I are quite similar. So I've got lots, so I would quite happily say, oh my God, we had this massive row. And I don't feel like that means, oh my God, we're doomed and the yes. people will be. But I know lots of people don't do that, which is quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, they still do. They still have ridiculous rows. And then, and then, or they'll be giggling about something and they're both like hysterical and you, like, but so it's quite. That's so lovely. You can't, I can't quite imagine that in, uh, I guess, our parents' generation. That's really nice that they have that intimacy. Yeah, they do. And then, oh God, they've been married for 48, 49 years, something like that. I think so. But I think I grew up thinking that marriage was, I didn't realise that marriage was hard until I did it myself. Okay, so, so I didn't they, have you didn't get that from them, no. No, so I don't. I didn't have those conversations with them until I was doing it. And, and I've said before, I remember I've written about, you know, feeling really angry after having a baby and rows with Doug and stuff. And I remember talking to my dad and, you know, they do that thing, well, they do that thing where there's one on the phone and the other one's shouting stuff in the background and they pass <laughs> over the other one. And dad was saying, oh, well, I've read it and I don't remember your mum being like that. I don't remember us. I was rang that much and then they talked about how there was a knife or something was thrown at somebody you know like yeah I think that probably was it they don't really remember they don't remember they remember rows but they don't remember that just after having a baby maybe it was quite tense so that's quite interesting so I don't they didn't talk about it, but now I do I talk to my mum all the time I'll ring her up and be like oh I had a row with Doug and she's quite funny because they'll generally side with Doug or say, you know, oh, you, no. <laughs> I know. Well, are you being kind, Steph? You know, or she'll say something really wise about being kind. And then dad will come on the phone and they've had a row. And it's just quite, you know, you can take the mick. It's quite funny. That's useful then, isn't it, to learn that there can be a disagreement, but it's OK. That's OK to have that fallout. I think, yeah. I think that's massive that you can have a disagreement with someone because that feeding into just the world that we're in at the moment in social media where you have if you disagree with yeah, someone polarized 
it has to be that they're a terrible person you can't possibly like them and actually that's so horseshit isn't it like it's just ridiculous but that's kind of where we've got to where someone you know like someone if you write something or you post something and someone says oh I totally disagree unfollowing and it's like okay you don't have we don't have to agree on it that's just never gonna work is it so tell me so pre-kids and post-kids relationship pre-kids relationship mini breaks champagne post-kids not so much yeah (laughs) not so much pre-kids so so I think I thought yeah it was all I think I always thought I would get married I didn't really see any different but I did meet Doug and fall really hard for him he was lots of things that I hadn't had in previous relationships and he proposed after like nine months so we were living he was moving to Italy to play rugby and he sent me flights to go and visit him. We'd only glamorous stuff. It was oh my so God. glamorous. I have been sold a pup because this is not my life now. He sent me flights to go and visit him. He sent me tickets to he gave me tickets to go and see Lake Miz because I hadn't seen it and he was a massive Lake Miz fan. Oh sweet. Um, yeah, it was so we did that whole thing. And then uh so I went to visit him and we just fell for each other really quickly but there were lots of things like he was intelligent and he was caring it was like and he played the guitar there were just loads of things that made that were like my oh, and he does this and he does this oh. and he was smart and he was driven and I don't think I'd really had that before and I think that was so yeah it was it was really quick but I we didn't realize each other's faults at all <laughs> at that proper that's proper falling in love stuff isn't it though when you're yeah, blind yeah. into the yeah and then so how soon after you met did you get pregnant and did you get married so we got married he proposed after like nine months and we got married a year later so like yeah it was like two years and then we had a baby two years after that okay and then tell me when you found out you were pregnant you were 14 weeks pregnant when you got Doug's diagnosis yeah so um my brother had got married like the weekend before so we'd been at the wedding we told everyone I was pregnant because you know I was 14 weeks yeah and actually at the wedding he'd been really really sweaty (laughs) so one of his symptoms was like sweating and he knew he wasn't right and he went to the GP and Basically, the GP was like, oh, you know, you're 30 and you're really fit. And because, you know, he played sport and stuff. And they said, you're, I'm sure it's anxiety or something. And then he he just was leaving the doctor's hand, like hand on the door stuff and just turned around and was like, do you know what? I've got private health. Can you refer me? Because I'm just, I'm, I don't feel right. And luckily he did because he had all these scans and stuff. And it was stage three, like a really rare thyroid cancer. So it's not actually curable. But there's there's lots of treatments. So it's kind of, he had to go through radiotherapy and surgery. So that summer was just this weird, really weird, because obviously I was getting more and more pregnant. And hormonal. And hormonal. And we're just dealing with this thing that we weren't probably that equipped to deal with. But we we came together on it. We were really good. Like the difficult time was more after, I would say, because I think... I found a role which was like to make sure he was okay like getting him pajamas he didn't have pajamas because he was a 30 year old man so obviously he didn't (laughs) and 
but I, I was on like, I remember I, I was on like a three day cycle. So I'd be like full of right, okay, determined, got control of this. And then about the third day, I just would crumble for a bit. And I would be imagining his funeral and oh God, what a sad tale this is, this fatherless child. And because you can't really help not, I think, yeah. when it's cancer and it's quite a serious cancer. So you're like, oh God. And, I, and that's when I'd call a friend. I can remember one friend lived in Ireland, one of my best mates who's now worked with me as well, and just ringing her. And I, I couldn't speak. I just kind of squeaked. And she was like, oh, Steph, she knew it was me. Yeah. And she's like, right, okay. And, you know, and people looked after me. We were really lucky in that we've got really close friends. Doug's all schoolmates. I know you know Emily. They were brilliant because they were in complete shock. This was their 30 year old, really fit mate, you know? So they all kind of looked clubbed together. So we had like a system where we would relay the information to one person who would then share it with the rest of them because it was just too much. I remember we went, two of them lived in Australia, two of Doug's best mates, and they came back and we went for like a lunch next to the hospital where he was and he couldn't speak. He had to write stuff down. And, and you could see on everyone's faces, like, bloody hell, this is quite a big deal. Because yes. the surgery was obviously to his throat. It was, it was tough, but I think we really knuckled down and it was more actually when I had my, so I had the baby, he finished radiotherapy the day before and Buster came four weeks early. So that was just this like, you know, like it was just a bit mad. Yeah. But we didn't have anyone else to think about. It was just us three. Yeah. And, our, you know, my mum was, when we came out of the hospital, my mum and dad had got, got in the house and lit the fire and filled the fridge. And then they oh. left after 10 minutes because they're good. Like, you know, they knew they didn't need us. We didn't need them hanging around. But when I had my second baby 21 months after, I really struggled. And I think it was almost because that first time I'd had to cope, we'd had to power through. There wasn't time to be postnatal or emotional or do you know what I mean yeah whereas then when I had my second and Doug was okay I think I just fell apart a bit and was like I needed you and you weren't there and then all these things came out which I don't know if I even really felt but I think I felt sad for the me that had had the first baby and and yeah. that he'd been recovering from like massive surgery and radiotherapy so he'd he'd had to sleep in another room so I was doing that first baby when you're waking up and they need feeding and you're like, shit, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I do this. And I, and I did feel quite alone, but obviously couldn't moan about it at the time. Because of what he'd just been through. Yeah, exactly. So it was complicated, definitely. And then the second time around, is were there expectations that were different or was it that his role was more looking after your firstborn or I think I just had massive expectations that it would be easier and he would be all over it and he'd be like Superman, which they're never going to meet up to, are they? I mean, they don't. <laughs> they don't. And he can't possibly, he couldn't possibly know what I, exactly what I needed. Yeah. I think that's probably quite common for lots of people when you have a baby. And that kind of leads to the rage that I think a lot of women feel in those first, let's say, year, let's say the first year. Um, two three whatever yeah yeah because you have expectation but you don't necessarily communicate yeah. it or you kind of think well of course they should know that to feed me and not leave the right control like two meters out of reach and all these things because maybe we're because women have been taught that we're carers and so we have all these views and then we have this expectation that 
they just don't match and our parents didn't have our mums probably didn't have that expectation because oh interesting so your mum equipped you very well in many ways for kind of relationships and life but I guess if that if that wasn't the expectation when she was going through that I don't know I don't know actually because she always says how my dad was very good and he got up in the night and when my sister had colic and but I suppose she for that generation they were grateful if men were like that it's a bonus we we expect it I expected it completely because we're equals right and then it's such an interesting generation I, I spoke to the um the Harvard psychologist uh Dr Tal Ben Shahar about um he has this thing the the fallacy of arrival or like expectations we have these expectations and normally it's around like a career goal if I get to this then I'll be happy but actually for women it can quite often be around marriage and kids the things that our whole life we have sort of rehearsed in our heads or at least have an idea of and then when it doesn't turn out the way we hoped we kind of think look around and go this is meant to be making me happy what's yeah why and also like you also we want we all not everybody but I want to work I enjoy work I love work so it's trying to get in your head how how does that fit with also wanting to be a great mum and have a nice house and like and it doesn't because you can't do all of it yeah so it's like yeah losing some of your expectations but having to really think oh god I think we're just an experiment at the moment our generation I think you're right I think our generation so tell me about during this time when you have these expectations of Doug and you have expectations of yourself and the doorbell keeps ringing and flowers arrive. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was with the first baby especially, because you all know that gifts dwindle a bit after your first one. Yeah, it's not as exciting. No, it was a complete surprise that people would send something. I just hadn't, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but bits would arrive for the baby, you know, you get the blanket or cuddly toy or whatever, and then flowers kept arriving, and... I just was sitting on a sofa feeling really overwhelmed. And your body's done this massive, well, however you've done it, your body has done this massive thing and you're a bit bruised and battered. Mm-hmm. And so it just struck me as a really weird gift. I, it just wasn't, I had no expectation of it. I didn't realise that was what was going to happen. And it was only afterwards I did some research and it was like 98% of new mums get flowers. Some get a ridiculous number and some might only get one bunch, but actually most get at least two or three and then that starts to where you're going to put them and and you've got to look after them and so I just I suppose going back to that kind of piece around empathy it just made me kind of when friends would have babies it'd be like right well they what do they need they need like some chocolate and something that will encourage them to sit down like a magazine or you know I know you haven't got time when you just had a baby but you you have you can find that you know when you you realize when you have more kids that you could have done with your first you could have sat down quite a lot and that was kind of where the idea came from it was like what could you give a new mum that is just eases things rather than is another thing to think about so whether that was chocolate or like a gin and tonic for when she's ready or cashmere something like now the range is we've got loads of gifts and loads of options and and we cover lots of different occasions and bereavement and birth birthdays actually become the top reason but that it's all very much still stems from that idea of what do you need when you need some looking after what yeah. could you what does somebody want to do and, and it's that empathy and that that I really underestimated how powerful that was going to be it's not really just about gifts it's about the idea that someone is thinking of you and yeah. they've that person needs a bit of looking after rather than oh I'll send them some flowers Frozen cash in, a lovely yeah. beautiful do you know yeah, yeah so that and that and then you get people crying when they get a package because 
it has a little tag and they've said something lovely and they've gone oh that person's really thought about what I need yeah. and they want me to sit down they want me to have a lovely hand cream and pamper myself whatever it is it's like your mum giving a hug at the school gates. I know, I know. I, know. I, I probably owe her quite a lot. <laughs> call her after the mum, thanks. Yeah, um, by the way. I'd read you writing about the, the things that were helpful when you've done packages now for Stand Up For Cancer and you've done work with them and the things that were helpful when Doug was having treatment or just the things that people should say and shouldn't say. And I guess that's part of the same thing, isn't it? It's the empathy and thinking whatever I'm uncomfortable with what's going to help so that acknowledgement again again same with my mum at the gate but the acknowledgement of someone going you must be having a really shit time these things might make you feel better and the just thinking yeah someone's really thinking about you and I think the workplace is really interesting because actually uh, a friend of Doug's when his mum died when he was 24 25 and his work sent him flowers he's a 24 year old man like what you know, you know, without going into stereotypes, but it's unlikely he's going to want a bunch of flowers. I mean, this is the, the husband who loves Les Mis, so let's, you know, let's not <laughs> broad yeah. strokes. But it was just quite interesting, like, the idea of, yeah, I think it's, there's just so many different routes you can go down other than flowers. Yeah. But yeah, I think with the, with cancer, when I wrote about it, it's like people acknowledging it, sitting with your, sitting with it, letting you cry, letting you say oh my god what if they die what am I going to do uh, being able to talk about it is probably because that all those things are going to be going through your head and then practical help if, if you've got kids or you need food you've got to eat those kinds of things are definitely the things that that help but I think that acknowledgement is a big piece same for um miscarriage as well we get quite a lot of packages sent for miscarriage and anyone I've spoken to who's had a miscarriage has said the worst thing is that people don't know what to do so or say so then sometimes they just do or say nothing and actually they need to just sit with you and let you if you want to let you talk about it yeah so it's it's acknowledging it and then it's letting the person say what they want to say and not oh well at least blah 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 you know oh well I'm sure yeah. we might, oh, I mean I had so many people say oh I know someone who had thyroid cancer and be like, yeah well this is a really rare thyroid cancer and but you, you don't want to pissed on their bonfire you know you kind of just have to go oh yeah I mean you get it now where people say oh so Doug's okay now and you kind of go oh yeah because there's no point in saying well actually it's incurable but he's okay at the moment you know it just yeah. brings real down on everything so tell me about so I yeah so I was reading that so you have every year you'll have a checkup and then yeah yeah, yeah. and so the, he's fine so he's, so he's fine but he had a, he had a, he was anxious over the summer and he had a couple of symptoms so he went and got checked out so the difference is now he can call up the consultant and go and have all the tests if yeah. he's worried at all so we used to you know it's 10 years now because my son's nearly 10 and it used to be a really stressful time waiting for tests and things we would both be really anxious we'd be pretending that we weren't and then after we got the results we'd and we you know we'd have a rouse about completely out of the dishwasher or whatever other things and then we'd get the results and then we'd both just like and we'd sort of crumble a bit and assess what had just happened which was that we'd been both pretending everything was fine yeah and it wasn't yeah and I think that's a massive I mean talking about how to be sad I think a massive learning for me from the last probably 10 years is you can you can pretend you're not sad and you can power through but it will come out at some point you can't 
it has to in some way whether that's as rage or whether that's two years down the line when everything's actually quite a lot calmer and suddenly you crumble mm. so the options are do you do it at the time <laughs> and find a better way to cope yeah or or leave it and you're playing it's, and it's like when someone says oh she's coping ever so well they're doing ever so well and it's like probably not pro- if they've gone through something major they're probably not at some point they won't be coping yeah I struggle for the better word to use than coping, but how do you handle it when you are feeling that huge stress and, or when, you know, when there's the business or there's normal stuff that happens with kids, what's, what are your strategies that, that help or that help you even to sit with sadness when that happens? I mean, I'm, I'm, I am a crier, so I'm quite happy to, I do tend to head to rage before upset if that may, I, as an adult I'm, I do like I'm mostly at my husband I'll be honest <laughs> and then you get hanger too yeah yeah <laughs> terrible hanger terrible but I suppose just being able to sit at home being able to talk about it being in a, and I am I can be honest with Doug so I can kind of talk about feeling sad with my mum or you know you have certain friends who are the ones that would be the ones for certain things I suppose mm. it depends what you're sad about I think as an adult you don't necessarily have like one friend who's your go-to for everything because yeah. it depends what it's about and how about I'm interested in you know in social media you you're very active on social media and that can be a source of like fun and entertainment but it can also be something that makes people feel a bit shitty how, mm. what's your relationship like with social media now I know you need it for work and yeah I definitely do less so I've done a lot less I felt really low in the summer and I I think like a lot of people just so I had powered through from March because work was so busy and then we went on holiday and I just crashed and I was waking up feeling really sad and just blue and I, so I wasn't posting very much because I because I can't really pretend everything's okay if it's not but also I don't want to be someone who's just posting a diatribe of their own personal experiences all the time and how they're coping because again I don't not when you're in it you can't really reflect but I did I did go to the GP well I had a call with the GP and I've got had some therapy through the NHS which I'm doing uh, like CBT which has been quite interesting but it's been weird because I feel a lot better now than I did then so it's that thing where you've got round to doing the treatment or whatever but you're not feeling what you were feeling when you felt really dark so yeah. you're kind of like do I still do this and it's like well no I probably should still do this because at some point in my life I'll probably feel like that again that that whole thing um, but I think probably there's going to be so many so much fallout in terms of mentally from this year yeah. and the next however long because there's so many people having having to cope and doing that classic power through therapists always say you should write down when you're at your worst because it's never the moment that you're sitting there with that person or that you're yeah. on a zoom call or that you're in a room with someone it's always you're like, I'm okay today yeah it's fine actually it's fine absolutely fine yeah. social media is something as well that has certainly made me like I never really when since becoming a parent I just it just gets busy and then you never really kind of pay much attention to what you look like and then social media is something that can be a source of of, you know just a satisfaction with what we look like or we just see so many images but I know that you've spoken about actually you've found social media quite helpful in terms of representing different kinds of bodies and different kind of faces and can you talk a little bit about because I have certainly I had anorexia in my 20s and it was something that I I've sort of had to work quite hard to be okay with especially now as a uh, having kids and having a daughter I'm, I'm very conscious of 
I'm going to try very hard to to work on this and sort sort myself out here. Um, and I know that's not often always possible, but can you share a little bit about how you manage that? Yeah, I think I go through phases because it depends who you're following, doesn't it? I think when you're in a logical frame of mind and you're on social media, you can look at it and you go, right, that person has posed in a certain way to show certain angles to look really great. There's filter on that, blah, blah, blah. But if you're in a darker place, it's such a bad thing to look at, any kind of social media. I mean, in the summer, it was people going on and on about how amazing their staycations were. And they weren't necessarily, because it was still a shitty time. This year is shitty. Do you know, like, a lot of us are trying to always, it goes back to that, everything's fine, everything's fine. And we're trying to look on the bright side because the guilt of moaning about it when you know you've got a house and a garden, for example, and a job. So that I think is something that like, torments me and probably most people where you're you're in this circle of feeling all those things. So then you don't feel like you could be, should be moaning and I know it's all relative and I know it doesn't, it doesn't work, the sort of what about you? What about those people and those people? That, that's not how it works because you still feel those feelings. But I think social media, for me, for the last few months, it just wasn't helpful for quite a lot of it. But when people go, like, oh, you have to curate your feed. It's like, but it, it, regardless of whether you curate your feed, you will still get fed images that aren't real mm-hmm. and you'll still get, I don't know why, but I've started getting fed loads of keto diet. Oh, I'm in my sure I've heard of it a lot, but I don't really know. Oh, what you're I don't know. But it's loads of pictures of people who've lost loads of weight, and I don't want to see them. Yeah. I don't know why they keep coming into my thing. So you know, I know it's an algorithm, so I must have looked at something, but I haven't been looking up diet pictures. So you're a bit like, so where is that? Or are they serving all women of a certain age, those maybe? Oh, God, how depressing. It's like The Social Dilemma, that the Netflix show. I know, I haven't watched it yet, and I don't know if I want to. <laughs> I, think it would, I think Instagram probably is changing massively. I think there was this kind of bubble of where anyone could be an influencer and lots of people. And it was great in that you had people who weren't just a certain look and shape promoting products. And but it's, I think it's gone into a bit of a dark place because ultimately it doesn't make people feel good mm. quite often yeah there's loads of there's loads of good things it's just you I, I think if you're you're in a good headspace then it's fine because then it's yeah. enjoyable and it's funny and it's all the things a meme and it's all this but if you're not in a good place which I suppose is where I've been so I'm, I have a slightly different view on it at the moment it just can make you feel terrible and like you say if you've had an eating disorder or I don't know it like having had one myself I don't know if you ever lose it I don't know that you ever kind of break free from it I think it's there but you learn that your mind's playing tricks on you yeah that's how I feel so like you say you have a responsibility I have a responsibility to my kids and my husband and myself to not let myself go down that route but you still have the same thoughts Mm -hmm. I think I listened to a really interesting podcast with Glennon Doyle and Fern Cotton. Yeah, she's amazing. And Fern Cotton. And they were talking about, so Glennon Doyle talks about having bulimia and how she still has those thoughts or she still has a day where she's probably spent 80% of the day with the thoughts in her head were about food or weight or have I eaten too much or have I eaten too little or have, you know, should I be thinner, whatever. And she, she still has that, but she then has to kind of, dig herself out of it and that, that is so complex so when you see lots of different shaped bodies and stuff that's great I want my kids to see that but some of the time 
it might be that that's what you're seeing but is that when when it's like oh body confident yeah i'm gonna let myself be free but it's not that simple if you've had a mental illness really yes you yeah. know what i mean it's, it's, it's not just what you look at there. yeah so when you go oh yeah exactly it's not just what you look like and and so if it's like oh i'm just going to decide that i don't mind my wobbly thighs it's like i don't if you've had a mental illness that isn't how it works yeah so it's complicated so a lot of the advocates for body positivity and stuff are, at the moment it seems to be a lot of size 12 white women who yeah. and it's good in that you're you're seeing a bit more curve or you're seeing a bit more fold in skin or whatever which is what skin does which is better than the body that's lying in a certain position and it, all it can't breathe clean. yeah yeah so it's so it's an improvement but it's not the answer necessarily yeah. i was interested when you are in a place where things are feeling dark or wobbly. I was interested in you saying about the three-day cycle earlier. I, I spoke to um, a professor who talked about when you're trying to beat addictions, for example, things go in a, in a sort of spiral. So there's always an inevitable relapse. And so I just wonder why kind of, I, I think a lot about what shape my moods are in and what shape the days are in. Do you have a, are you a three-day cycle kind of person? What, how do things progress and what helps well, when you are feeling low? I keep, hearing about people tracking and like their monthly cycle and stuff oh yeah interesting and i keep thinking i should maybe do that because i'm sure there's some pattern in it but i yeah. it's just energy isn't it like who has the time <laughs> i know and i even go oh you really should do that like, oh i'm sure i should but oh god and and to be honest the la the last few months less so in the last month but i just felt pretty flat quite a lot so i wasn't didn't really feel like i was on any cycle or i'd i'd have a good day but I'd have less good days than days where I just, it wasn't like misery, but just that flatness, which I think probably quite a lot of people are feeling. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what the cycle is. I think maybe there is something in that. I don't know, but there's so much in this, you know, like we just get bombarded with information. Then it's like talking about the moon and whether it's a full moon and whether it's a- Oh gosh. Right. Like, oh God, this is so much information that, and that might become, does that become a distraction that then frames your mood rather than, yeah your mood do you know what I mean do you use um I know you are a good exerciser for for feeling yes. good do you are, are like books or like seeing friends I think is the one that's important for you like what are your things that you know that are important to schedule in when even when you may not feel like it yeah definitely exercise because you do always feel better afterwards mm. like but then quite often I'm doing that on my own but I started doing netball last year mm, fantastic mm. oh does uh, it make you feel like you're at school again it's really fun. when I was crap at when I was quite chubby as a kid and I wasn't I was in I did drama and arts okay Same. I wasn't yeah. a <laughs> I wasn't a sports person and actually now I'm quite fit and I probably could have done but I yeah I'm crap at netball I don't really understand the rules I'm not great at throwing or catching but I'm I just know that you're not supposed to move around with the ball which is fine by me I just stand still and I catch it yeah. brilliant Fine. it's really funny because you see the different personality types that were the ones from school so the oh. ones who are center and the ones who are certain position so I'll go on the wing somewhere and just run up and down a lot like that's I'm fine with that but we just started back training outdoors this week and it was really nice and I thought oh yeah I've missed that pattern to my week we're on a Tuesday night regardless of what was happening at home regardless of work I'd committed to doing that so I'd leave and I think you I think we women mothers need some bits like that it doesn't have to obviously be netball but something that you're committed to so that you can't just go oh I'm too tired I've got too much work on the kids need me that you leave and and the family knows that that's where you're you know you go to that thing 
because I think it just grounds you again each each time yeah and it doesn't um, matter how well you're doing in your career or what's happening at home you are no you are wing yeah. attacks and, and because I have to concentrate so hard because I'm so crap at it I don't think about it's whereas if I'm in the gym on my own or on yeah. in a you're still thinking about it, aren't you I'm listening to a bloody business podcast or something mm-hmm. you know so um yeah I think that and I love like having a treatment or something like that but again like your, your brain's still whizzing and I do I'm missing friends I miss the spontaneity I mean, we don't really have that anyway as an adult I guess but just being able to imagine and, yeah well so far the last few months any plans I've made I've ended up having to cancel because of something Covid related and I'm like I don't think I want to make any more plans not long to not like oh in two weeks I'm doing that because it's just yeah. no point it's too yeah. miserable when you keep going oh and now we're not doing that and with all that you know and with the year that we are currently having and who knows how long this situation may continue what is there anything that you would tell kind of child you or even 21 year old you going into adulthood from what you know now and the crazy world that we live in is there anything would have helped you handle your your sort of so-called negative emotions better with hindsight um I think probably I think everyone should have some sort of therapy really the earlier you could kind of learn more about yourself or why you're doing certain things or how you stop yourself from doing certain things would be good. Yeah, I, think, I suppose if I was going back to 21, the biggest one for me would be to actually properly tackle um, an eating disorder rather than resolve it myself, but not necessarily completely fully understand what happened there and, and all that kind of thing. Because it's just wasted and it's so much energy and just wasted you kind of think what and and again I know it's not only women that suffer with um, eating disorders but you kind of go is it this is so consuming and such a waste of energy and we want that equality and yet we're spending all this time and energy on and so many women do on on those things where if you didn't have that imagine what we could do imagine yes yeah that's a really good point yeah in the extra capacity we would have yeah because yeah, it is consuming and it in, in the same way that glenn and doyle spoke about it that where your thoughts are taken up with thinking about food or controlling it or whatever that could be so freeing if you didn't have that yeah. i get and i know there's not a switch but it's like well how do you that's it's you know it's a massive issue so yeah Oh, Steph. Well, I think you have you have done brilliantly uh, in spite of the, the sort of slings and arrows that life throws at us. And <laughs> I think the way that you are always advocating that people be more honest and vulnerable is only a good thing. And I think I'm sure lots of people are incredibly grateful for it. So thank you so much for speaking to thank me. Thank you very much. And I wish you a slightly more relaxing rest yeah. of the day, maybe. Oh, God.